Hello, I'm Michael Serapio, and this is the Primetime Politics Podcast. Tonight on Primetime Politics. The call is across Ontario to protect our children and most vulnerable. A return to masking in Ontario, but no mandate to enforce it. With children's hospitals across the country struggling with RSV, the flu and COVID-19, are tougher health measures needed also? This was absolutely humiliating and terrifying. Speaking out against the incarceration of refugees. Former Justice Minister Alan Rock will join us to talk about the practice of throwing migrants into jails as they come to Canada seeking refuge. And... We're talking about Beijing putting agents in MPs' offices... Interfering in Canadian democracy. Amid allegations that China tried to influence the 2019 election, Will Prime Minister Trudeau raise the issue with Xi Jinping at the G20? This is Primetime Politics. Hello, I'm Michael Serapio. Ontario's top doctor has an urgent plea for everyone in the province, recommending the return to mask use for all indoor public settings, including schools and daycares. Dr. Kieran Moore is making the recommendation as children's hospitals in the province struggle to deal with a sharp rise in RSV and flu cases, and the healthcare system continues to struggle with the effects of COVID-19. Here is Ontario's Chief Medical Officer of Health. What we are facing is a triple threat that requires our collective action, an action to protect the most vulnerable in our communities, the very young, the very old, and those with underlying medical issues, and to ensure that our health care system remains able to care for Ontarians when they need it. I am reminding Ontarians to get back to using all the layers of protection that we know work to keep ourselves and other, others healthy. Now, Dr. Moore's recommendations are only that. It falls short of a mask mandate. But should it be a return to mandatory masking, not only in Ontario, but in other parts of the country, as hospitals right across Canada are dealing with this triple threat? To talk about that, we're now joined by Dr. Robert Cushman, who is currently the Acting Medical Officer of Health for Renfrew County in Ontario, and Dr. Grace Salvo, who is a Medical Officer of Health for Alberta Health Services, responsible for the Edmonton Zone. Hello to the two of you. Good afternoon. Uh, Dr. Hi. Hi. Dr. Krishman, I'm going to get you to start us out here, as you are in the same province as Dr. Moore. Given the strain on hospital resources right now, do you think a recommendation for mask wearing is enough? Well, we, if you looked at what Dr. Moore said, he really um, basically said everything that would lead you to conclude we should have a mandate, but he stopped short of that. And that's because of the it's essentially a political decision and I guess he didn't get the support he needed. So, um, but we have enough going on at this point with these three viruses that um, it really, uh, it, it warrants a mandate. I mean, we've had so much trouble with the children. We're seeing influenza now very quickly starting to rise. COVID's actually sort of in a steady state. So um, as we look toward Christmas and the holiday season, and the shopping and the festivities, uh, if we don't blunt this early, 
I think we're going to be in bigger trouble down the line. Mm -hmm. Now, Dr. Salvo, Ontario is having a very different conversation than what Alberta is having right now. Can you talk to us about uh, what you are seeing in Edmonton hospitals when it comes to RSV as well as the flu and COVID-19? Mm -hmm. So we're seeing an increase in activity of respiratory illnesses. Um, especially we could speak to influenza, we're seeing an early start to the season, so quite a few uh, people presenting to hospital with influenza. So since uh, late August, we had 146 hospitalization for influenza alone with 13 ICU admissions. Um, we're also seeing an increase in RSV cases, um, which affect a lot the younger uh, children. So we're seeing quite a bit of respiratory illnesses across the board. Um, and we really want to ask people be, to get uh, vaccinated to prevent the spread of these illnesses so we could get vaccinated against COVID and influenza to protect ourselves. Um, we're asking them to remember that hand hygiene and all those um, messaging we were talking about during the pandemic to prevent respiratory illnesses. So to wash their hands with soap and water, uh, don't touch your face. Um, we're asking people to not share objects. So when we think of RSV, a lot of it is spreading uh, with children who might be sharing kind of bottles, pacifiers, and toys they would put in their mouth. Um, wearing a mask is also another way to prevent the spread. Um, people may choose to wear a mask even if there's no mandate, uh, especially when they're in indoor crowded places. Um, earlier, Christmas shopping and all that is coming. So think about bringing your mask when you're going out. Mm. Um, also think about not having any ill visitors in your home, even though maybe you had plans for, for meeting up for Christmas or holidays. Uh, ask people if they're ill before they come over. Yeah, and what's interesting out of that is while, you know, Ontario right now is having this discussion about mandate versus recommendation, right now Alberta seems to be very focused on, on continuing the education and reminding people about the need of basic protection. Is that fair to say? That's fair to say, and we hope people could kind of hear this message that we are experiencing strains in our in our emergency departments, especially our pediatric emergency department is quite full right now. Um, so please listen to, to these measures and, and kind of do your part to help prevent the spread. Now, Dr. Kirschman, I guess part of the challenge here is it's interesting to hear Alberta's approach because even if there were a mandate, I, I think the, the concern amongst many is how many people would actually follow that mandate. Given that people have been allowed to drop, for example, the mask, how many people would go back even if there was a mandate from the province? Well, we've seen this before, you know, bicycle helmets, uh, seatbelts, uh, you can only cheerlead and recommend to a certain percentage and then you hit a stone wall. So uh, the real issue here is um, would mandates, it's a small sacrifice, uh, would mandate, what would be the repercussions for mandates? I mean, would you have civil unrest, sort of what we saw in Ottawa in January? And that's hard to gauge, I must say. So the situation does warrant a mandate, but whether it's um, worth the political risk I would think that we need leadership, that we need courage, and we need the uh, the political will whereby we explain this to people and we say, look, you know, well, let's do this for three to four weeks and see how we're doing. I mean, we could, as I said earlier, we could be in big trouble um, by, you know, the first week of December because we didn't do this. Uh, quickly running out of time, but Dr. Krishman, I'm wondering if you might answer a question for me. Is there a trigger point where you think public health officials will have no choice but to bring back a mandate? 
Well, I think you're already seeing it. You're seeing it in certain school boards who are considering this. You're seeing it with hospital visitation. They may do it in long-term care. The problem is in Ontario is that we have 34 health units. So you're gonna see all these individual decisions and you're gonna see it's not gonna be symmetrical. And that's why, you know, health is a provincial responsibility. And that's why we look to the province for leadership and guidance when it comes to these difficult decisions. Dr. Robert Cushman, really appreciate the time today. Thank you for that. Dr. Grace Salvo, also thank you to you for your time today. Thank you. Thank you. Two former ministers are lending their voices to Amnesty International and Human Rights Watch today. Alan Rock and Lloyd Axworthy speaking out about the detention of refugees in provincial jails. According to Amnesty International Canada, tens of thousands of people, including children and refugee claimants, have been incarcerated over the last 10 years. Individuals seeking refuge in Canada who instead were locked up even though none were facing criminal charges. That included Abdelrahman El Mahdi, who came to Canada looking for protection and who ended up spending months in prison not understanding why and unable to hear or communicate with authorities. I spent most of my time in, in jail in silence because I was only provided with one hearing aid at a time and only for the CBSA meetings and hearings. The batteries would run out after a few hours. I was repeatedly handcuffed and strip searched. This was absolutely humiliating and terrifying, and I had no idea why I was there. I just cried. Well, joining us now is the former Justice Minister, Alan Rock. Alan Rock, nice to see you again. Michael, it's nice to be here. So, you know, I think this practice of incarcerating refugees, many Canadians know this happens, many others do not. Just how commonplace is this practice? Well, far too commonplace. The report published last year by Human Rights Watch and Amnesty International jointly documented uh, over 10,000 cases of people being held in detention um, pending the determination of their legal status. So it's very widespread and so many lives have been touched and frankly uh, affected uh, very deeply as a result of this practice. Mm -hmm. I'm going to get into that in, in, in a moment, but talk to us about the kind of facilities that individuals are held in and for how long are they held in these essentially jails? Well, um, what happens is when you present at the border and the border agency um, asks for your legal status and they're not satisfied that you had the status to be in Canada, then uh, you can be released until there's a hearing or you can be detained. It's entirely in the discretion of the border, border agency, Michael. Um, the government of Canada has created three holding centers in Ontario, Quebec, and British Columbia, which have about 370 beds total. They're like uh, minimum security uh, prisons. Uh, there's some supervision, but it's not as bad as being in jail. However, in too many cases, the border agency decides that instead of having you in a federal holding facility, 
they're going to use the agreement the federal government has with the provinces to hold you in a provincial jail. And the trouble with that is um, the agency has no power over the conditions in which you're kept in the jails. The jails in the provinces are, are created for people accused of or convicted of crime. In the case of immigration detention, there's no time limit as to how long you can be kept. So, for example, the report from Human Rights Watch and Amnesty International documented over 300 cases since 2016 of people held longer than a year in immigration detention. So, if you're held for an indeterminate period in a provincial jail where you can be held in uh, solitary confinement, uh, you're locked up with people accused of or convicted of crime, what comes out of that is gross human rights violations, completely unjust practices. And as you refer to off top there, real practical impacts, the type of trauma it inflicts on these individuals, which I think would shock many Canadians who see Canada as this place of refuge for people around the world. Talk to us about the kind of stories that you've heard about the effects this type of incarceration has. Well, it's resulted in suicide attempts on the part of those who are locked up indefinitely in provincial jails, who've done, who committed no crime, accused of no crime, and feel hopeless, feel they, they don't know how or when they're ever going to be able to get out. And there have been cases where there have been suicide attempts. Indeed, there have been suicides. And uh, there have been coroner's inquests looking into some of these deaths. But ev even for those who survived the experience, it often is a traumatizing period, uh, which makes them fearful of authority in Canada, which makes them fearful of police because they don't know if they're going to be pulled over again and detained for no reason that they can understand. So the testimony of the people who've been through this awful experience is quite harrowing. Just today at the news conference, we had two individuals who experienced just that, who were thrown into provincial jails without understanding why, who were being kept for who knows how long. The man who spoke this morning said he spent three months in provincial jail in British Columbia without having any idea when he'd be able to, uh, to leave. Mm -hmm. And yes, it does have a huge emotional and psychological impact on the people who endure it. Are these security concerns that leads to the incarceration of these individuals, uh, are those valid security concerns? The 94% of the cases of people being detained by CBSA are on the grounds of flight risk, meaning we're worried that if we release you into the community, you won't turn up for your hearing to determine your legal status. So that's 88%. And a few other percentages come from CBSA not being completely satisfied with your documents. So hardly a security risk. These are people who pose no threat that can be demonstrated. And in fact, the odd thing, Michael, is that in March of 2020, when the pandemic hit, when the pandemic arrived, there were over 9,600 people detained for immigration purposes, either in provincial jails or holding centers. CBSA released all but 1,600 of them into the community because of the pandemic. Mm -hmm. Now, there's proof positive that you release you know, 8,000 people and the sky didn't fall. There were no reports of community endangerment, no public safety issues, no crime. So 
the using flight risk as an excuse to detain someone we say is far too broad a discretion it should be challenged it should be supervised the CBSA has among the strongest police powers of any public security agency in the country and it's the only public security agency not subject to independent civilian oversight and it's high time there be effective oversight on these decisions. Now the news conference that you took part in launches 12 days of action to try to raise the awareness about this issue uh, with federal politicians. So what would you like to see happen instead of what's currently taking place? Four of the ten provinces have already ripped up the agreement with Ottawa, allowing Ottawa to use its provin their provincial jails for immigration detention. What we, what we ask the Government of Canada is, do we have to wait until the, the other provinces rip up the agreements, or will Ottawa show leadership that's required, step out in front of this and say, we're going to end this practice right now? So what we want to see is the Government of Canada taking the leadership required to bring this practice to an end. It can do it progressively, it can ease into a new way of doing things, but it must end. And Michael, there are literally hundreds of community facilities across the country that are available to support and to look after people while they're awaiting their hearing. You don't have to put them in prison, just commit them to a community agency which is available have them stay in touch with that agency, have them then appear for their hearing when, when their hearing occurs. Um, and I, I dare say the vast majority of people would, would attend those hearings. There are also technologies available now mm -hmm. which permit the authorities to keep in touch with people uh, while they're awaiting their hearing without them being detained. Alan Rock, good to speak with you again. Thank you for being here. Michael, thanks for the opportunity to talk about this important issue. The Prime Minister continues his Asia trip tonight after wrapping up the ASEAN summit in Cambodia yesterday. And it was there in Phnom Penh where Justin Trudeau responded to a global news story. Now, according to the outlet, the Prime Minister and members of his cabinet were warned by CSIS that China's Communist Party is trying to interfere with Canada's democratic process. This reportedly included giving money to nearly a dozen candidates who ran for parliament in 2019. Take a listen to the Prime Minister's response. Canadians, yes, why we need to be mindful uh, about the real threats of foreign interference that exist at home and around the world. They can also be reassured that our institutions are strong, that our democracy is strong, uh, and that we have measures in place to ensure uh, that people know about it if uh, anything does happen. Um, but of course, uh, we're always going to engage uh, with leaders in ways uh, that highlight concerns of Canadians, uh, that stand up for our values and uh, underscore preoccupations uh, that Canadians have about things going on in the world. That was Cambodia yesterday, but will the issue be raised by the Prime Minister at the G20 in Indonesia? That is where the Prime Minister is right now, and that's where Trudeau will meet with other world leaders, including China's Xi Jinping. And if he doesn't raise the issue with the Chinese president, does that create problems of its own? To talk about this, we're now joined by Guy Saint-Jacques. He was Canada's ambassador to China from 2012 to 2016. Ambassador, thank you for joining us. 
Uh, thank you for the invitation. I want to begin uh, with your reaction to, to this news report, again from Global, that the Chinese Communist Party is involved in activities here in Canada that's meant to interfere with our democratic process. Does that surprise you in any way? Uh, not at all. And in fact, uh, <clears throat> there has been uh, evidence uh, for quite some time that uh, there is uh, interference uh, activities uh, being conducted by uh, Chinese uh, state actors in, in Canada. Uh, in fact, since uh, Xi Jinping uh, took power uh, 10 years ago, uh, he has increased the budget of the United Front Work uh, Department and of the uh, Ministry of State Security. So you have more spying taking place and more interference and interference takes place in our political system uh, but also uh, on university campuses to try to prevent discussion on subjects that uh, china consider red lines uh, and uh, uh, all this in my view calls for a full investigation and i would go further it also calls for the adoption of uh, laws to prevent uh, foreign interference in canada similar to the laws that were adopted by Australia a few years ago. Mm -hmm. Now, why would China want to interfere with Canada, though? Canada has a history of being very open to, to, to relations with the People's Republic. So why would China want to interfere with this country? Well, uh, you're right. You know, we, we, we had, uh, I would say, uh, uh, a very successful relationship with China until uh, a few years ago. Uh, I would say that uh, trust was completely broken with the Meng Wanzhou uh, to Michael's uh, affairs. But also, I would say that we have learned a lot more in the last uh, uh, few years on uh, the aggressive uh, foreign policy conducted by China. They don't hesitate to take a course of action such as uh, uh, hostage taking or punishing a country with uh, severe uh, tariffs. Uh, but uh, they also uh, take advantage of our open societies. Uh, and uh, you see that uh, Ambassador Tsong Fei, the Chinese ambassador, takes opportunities of uh, all interview requests, all uh, speaking engagements in Canada. We offer him all those platforms. Uh, and they, they know also that they can manipulate uh, Canadian public opinion, especially in the Chinese community, because a large number of Canadians of Chinese origin use um, uh, Chinese uh, social media like uh, WeChat. And I'm convinced that there was also interference uh, in uh, the election of uh, a year ago. Uh, and again, it's something that we have to be a lot more sensitive to. Okay, we need to be a lot more sensitive. But the Canadian officials, the Canadian government, the Trudeau government, do they understand the threat well enough, do you think? Well, I think that uh, uh, it's, it, it has reached a point where it cannot uh, be uh, ignored. And it's a question we, we heard recently, uh, a CSIS representative say that uh, uh, the uh, agency does not have enough resources to, uh, to tackle the problem. Uh, and and uh, clearly, I think we, we have to devote uh, more resources uh, and the you know, in all of this, I think it's uh, uh, important for the uh, Trudeau government to indicate that uh, it, it won't tolerate any foreign interference because, in fact, not doing anything might create the impression that uh, they are uh, benefiting from such uh, interference. And therefore, I think if we are serious about our democracy and our values, 
uh, this require a strong intervention. You talk about government signals, and when you talk about the Trudeau government, we know that they've yet to unveil their Indo-Pacific policy, but in broad strokes, we strongly suspect it will be about shoring up relations with more like-minded, democratically-minded countries. Is that at least a positive sign? Yes, in fact, I was very encouraged by the speech uh, that uh, Minister Jolie gave uh, last week. And, uh, you know, we, we when we look at our allies, we have... Uh, to recognize that the United States is a, a paramount uh, security ally. Uh, and, uh, uh, you know, things have changed also in Washington. Uh, Washington has identified uh, China as a strategic rival. Uh, and because the voice of Canada is uh, limited in trying to deal directly with uh, China on difficult issues such as human rights, uh, that's why we need to forge uh, alliances, uh, reinforce existing alliances, to try to push back on China. The only language that China understands is uh, firmness. And if we can come as a group uh, to force China to change its uh, behavior, we have more chances of success. Okay, well, to that, the, the PMO is not saying whether or not uh, it has requested a meeting with Xi Jinping during the G20. But should the prime minister actually bring up the issue of, of Chinese interference during uh, the G20? Should they be meeting with Xi? Well, I think that uh, I would not be surprised if there were informal soundings in Beijing to see if uh, a meeting could be arranged. But you, you can bet that Xi Jinping does not want to reward uh, Mr. Trudeau, uh, especially after the, the speech that was given by uh, Minister Freeland in Washington a month ago, after also Minister Champagne ordered uh, three uh, companies, uh, uh, Chinese companies, to uh, divest their investment in, in Canadian mining uh, societies. Uh, and of, of course, after uh, Minister Jolie announced that uh, we will have a much more restricted engagement with, uh, with China. I hope that uh, this being said, that Minister Jolie will be able to corner uh, her counterpart, Wang Yi, to discuss this. There might be an opportunity uh, for the Prime Minister to exchange a few words with Xi Jinping, because they will be seated next uh, to, to each other. But in any case, I think that the uh, again, Xi Jinping uh, is still in a mood to, uh, that he wants to punish uh, Canada and offer no rewards. Okay, but if she does not speak to the prime minister and it does fall on Jolie, what is the danger if this issue is not raised? The, the very fact that uh, intelligence in this country is warning of Chinese interference. Well, I think the clearly the measures that need to be taken need to be taken right here in, in Canada. Uh, and, uh, you know, we, uh, this subject and spying, uh, those issues have been raised in the past with China, despite, uh, uh, you know, discussing this and warning China about consequences, uh, we have to be, uh, to realize that there were not really that much uh, uh, consequences and, and China will continue to do this, to take advantage. And, and therefore, uh, personally, I think it's more important to show leadership by taking measures in Canada, by adopting new laws. This will send a clear message. And also, you know, what the government could do if he can, if it can identify Chinese official, Chinese diplomats that have been involved in interference activities, this person should be expelled from, from Canada. Guy Saint-Jacques, thank you very much for the time again. Thank you.
Before we end tonight's program, we wanted to check in with the Public Order Emergency Commission. The inquiry now focusing on the federal government's response to the Freedom Convoy. And today, the former top bureaucrat at Public Safety was asked if meeting with protest organizers would have been helpful. That so-called engagement strategy was suggested by the Ontario Provincial Police Liaison, but the former Deputy Minister did not think it would work. I only know what uh, Inspector Bodin was telling me, which was that he believed it was um, worthy of consideration. And, you know, given the, the sense he has of the behavior of protests, uh, that it might, it might have effect. I, it, it, if I were to push it, I would say I had the feeling that it was a very low order of probability that it would have had a material effect because the protesters had been in Ottawa in a determined way for an extended period of time. The Commission will continue hearing from federal officials this week. That includes the RCMP Commissioner, the Prime Minister's National Security Advisor, and the Clerk of the Privy Council. And that is it for tonight's program. I'm Michael Serapio. Thank you for joining us. See you again tomorrow.